Greetings, dear listener. This is Ian McKenzie. The following is a conversation recap for our Pandemic is a Prism series, where Zamir and I harvest our reflections after each session. It is recommended you listen first to the full episode with the guest, and then come here afterward. Enjoy. Welcome back. We are here once again. This is uh, Ian McKenzie, and I'm joined by Zamir Danji. And we are here to offer a conversation recap on uh, our session. It was last week, actually, this time, with uh, artist, activist, poet, uh, Alixa Garcia. Yeah, it was truly a deep listening experience for me, just to really let the spirit of what she was saying uh, permeate me, I felt. And she had opened with this intention to, you know, just as Pat McCabe did as well. And I, and I noticed this quality actually almost between them, this quality of opening oneself and listening to what wants to be spoken. Uh, and so I was just sort of taking that in since she had invoked that. And it was beautiful. It really touched me, our conversation. For me, this conversation was, um, you know, I was really curious to, one, get her perspective of being in, in New York, was, you know, early days of the pandemic. I thought that was um, yeah, powerful for her to share. I mean, she had some specific writing that she'd done and we, we touched on that as well. Um, but that, you know, really her, this conversation drew upon her many years. Um, I mean, probably at least two decades now, uh, really engaged in this um, sense of, of that there's a deep climate emergency, which of course is now really upon us. And that, you know, all of her work and efforts and in, in weaving um, and, and wondering as an imaginal curiosity or as an imaginal being, and we touched on that too, as a, as the sense of how to approach this time, that this whole pandemic conversation as well was sort of, um, you know, loomed, loomed, loomed through, through that wider lens, you know, again, of what is the earth speaking and what is it saying to us? What do we need to hear um, and how? And, yeah, and yeah, that to me was really um, sort of the, yeah, the, not backdrop per se, because it was so much of the, of the conversation, but it, yeah, it, it's, it's so vital in a sense to provide the wider context to something, uh, for example, like the pandemic and, you know, what forces were already at play and what accelerated and, um, and yeah, how is it, you know, different and, and more of the same, how might it be different? You know, the marginal futures that to me was like the overall sense of our journey. Mm. Yeah. When she said that word imaginal this time, I immediately thought of those words by Albert Einstein. You know, imagination is greater than knowledge. Mm. And, you know, as we look out, we have so much knowledge in terms of we have all this data of what's going to happen, why things are happening, whether it's the pandemic data, whether it's the climate crisis data, whether it's the health crisis data. I mean, we have all the knowledge, but without imagination, how are we going to create something from a different level of thinking from how, from what, what created it, which is also what he said. Mm -hmm. So it's like that quality of imagination is so essential. We've placed so much emphasis on great. We have so much knowledge. We have so much data, but how do we activate the hearts and minds so that we can imagine a different or a possible future? Right? Mm -hmm. And there wasn't a tone of great hope, in her convert in our conversation though in many ways there was but and i'm not even saying it that hope is this wonderful thing that we should celebrate <laughs> you know it, it how do we move in spite of perhaps not having hope 
but having clarity. Mm. Um, well, that would be tremendous. I mean, of course, the, you know, I've been sort of dis, uh, disavowed or, or messed with in my understanding of what hope is uh, through my time with Stephen Jenkinson. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> and he, yeah, I mean, a very quick thing is that there's this, and he learned in the death trade, of course, that there's this uh, often maniacal grip on this sense that hope, like you got to have hope, right? Yeah. And, and, and certainly that can be useful when there's, you know, possibilities. But when, for example, a terminal diagnosis is pretty clear in the, in where, one is in their time that this clinging to hope can really make it, it, it prevents them. He calls it, uh, they die, not dying. Right. Like they're, as in they're un, unable. And this often is, is collaborated by, you know, doctors and family members as well, that they're just, they're actually not allowed to die. And, and then they die, not being allowed to die, which sounds again, a very like, not, it's more than wordplay. Um, but he says, because why does that happen? Well, the opposite of that is understood in that dynamic in that duality as well, if you're not hopeful, you're hopeless, right? Which is often akin to despair and, you know, nobody wants to be there because that's just giving up. But he says, you know, there's a third way, which is, um, you know, it's not generally understood as actually a very important way, which he calls being hope free. Meaning you, one doesn't need to be certain about the outcome to be willing to proceed in a, in a meaningful way. Right. That, and, and this is I can this is the moment, I think, where particularly when we're talking about climate emergency is, you yes. know, there's there's no guarantees, of course, that, quote, it'll work out um, because, you know, the, the unraveling of complex systems is very much happening amongst us. And so the, the kind of adult level sense of consequence and responsibility is to proceed w with no hope, right, no guarantee that it'll be. And that seemed to be the quality of uh, Elixir, I think, as well that she was willing to proceed, particularly uh, to, to craft beauty, which is something, a quality that I see so much in her work, you know, both as an artist, like a mural painter and uh, illustrator, but also, of course, with her poetry, which, right. you know, she graced us at the beginning of the series or at the beginning of the conversation with a beautiful piece and yeah. then again closed us at the end. And it was really profound. Right. Yeah, I, I love that poetry that she opened with. And I'm glad we let her do it because we couldn't have done it performed in the same way that she did. And, and I think that set the tone for a lot of how I received the conversation, which is there was a there was an eloquence um, that matched a deep sense of feeling that she had. Um, as in she was willing to feel deeply the earth, to be a voice for it, um, and, and clothe it in her own beautiful language as she did. Uh, but th there's this quality of almost an impassionedness in how she spoke, um, which, you know, I was I was reading this uh, line from Tiakas and Ghost Horse, who we're going to be interviewing next week. I thought he's just almost like a perfect keynote, like a like a sort of like a, a, a harmonic or an octave above. You know, it's almost like Pat McCabe and then uh, Alexia and then Tiakas. It's almost like a you know a first, a fifth, and then a, a, an octave. You know. I kind of think musically. So uh, he had this line, which is, you know, it's not enough for us to do our best. We have to do what's required. Mm. And doing what's required, actually, in a way, having hope free, that's how you see what's required. You get to see what's there and what is. And that's sort of what I heard her say is like, this is what's required of us. And in relation to the pandemic, one thing that, that stood out from what she said, which, which I agreed with is, the absolute necessity to slow down. Hmm. 
and that there's been a slowing down perhaps temporarily in our capitalist engine, travel engine uh, by necessity, but she also meant the slowing down of all of us really needing to face ourselves. And that's how we're able to listen to the voice of the earth. How do we really hear nature speaking? So it's touched our hearts and then we might respond differently, but if we don't slow down and we have all the gadgets of distractions that have perfectly swept in to help us avoid the discomfort of doing nothing. You know, mm. I was in a hammock yesterday. I committed to doing nothing. It was hard for a little while. We would try to sit and, and truly do nothing, think nothing, plan nothing, but just be. It's one of the most difficult things for a human being to just mm. simply be with, with that. And I hear her invitation to that. Then we'll know, we'll hear it ourselves. I mean, I should uh, uh, name to the audience as well that, I mean, this is coming from a, a fairly experienced meditator that I understand that you are. Uh, the difficulty of that very thing of not, you know, moving on to the next thing um, constantly, you know, internally. And I'm certainly guilty of that. And, um, you know, I feel on mass as well with, with what we're seeing, um, you know, the, the deep need, I think, as a theme throughout the whole series actually has been certainly this quality of listening, of pausing, of understanding, like, where are we, you know, really in relation to all of these forces at work, all of the historical momentum, uh, all of the inability to imagine a kind of post-capitalist future that, um, I, I mean, I think it was this conversation where she said, she quoted a different author, I believe, who said, you know, it's easier to imagine the end of humanity or extinction than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Remember that? <laughs> wow. Right? <laughs> Which is, yeah, which is quite interesting when you think about it, again, because it goes back to another piece of uh, one of our previous conversations where um, I think I teased apart this idea that humanity and civilization are not inherently the same thing, right? Or maybe civilization even, I believe, like Daniel Pinchbeck, I think as well, maybe has said, well, you know, civilization has some nice things like, you know, good art and this kind of stuff. And I think what I wasn't saying is... Um, sort of uh, uh, society or sort of mass society in some way, like like the gathering of people together can create, you know, obviously beautiful creativity and lots of things. But what, what I think I was more referring to was like modern industrial society that has a particular, obviously kind of voracious, all devouring, uh, you know, that's that's the Wetiko um, sort of viral nature, right? Of a, of a culture or an anti-culture that devours other cultures. Well, you know, so you say that because that was the story that I told, uh -huh. which, yeah, yeah. Shiva, which, you know, where, where the, the message from Shiva, which is the message of the divine, you know, and, and you to take it that way is that, well, consume yourself, use that energy that you have, which is present within humans. We, 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 we have violence or we are willing to kill in order to live. And there's some degree of necessity to that. But how do we take that devouring energy and turn it in ourselves? And I think that Alix is saying, well, we have to face ourselves. We have to see where are we so, where is our greed? Where is our anger? Where's our lust? Where's our pride? Where's our attachment and clinging? Where are those, the, that, that's that engine that is also within us. We have to be still enough and deeply confronted so our hearts can say, yeah, this is not the way. Mm. You know, in India, we say it's not the dharma which is what, in a way, this creation of Lord Shiva was asking to him, like, what is, you know, what do I do? Mm -hmm. This hard. I mean, 
what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, this to me, you know, I, I feel like I've also been a, a sort of jostle with my own contentions, you know, around in some ways what feels like a collapse to this idea that change only happens personally, right? That, that there's this sort of, uh, one must change themselves before they change the world, right? That's the dynamic. And, but that also is deeply co-opted by the very same, you know, capitalist, commodified, personal growth system by which people kind of lull, lull themselves into feeling that they're deeply of, of sort of revolutionary consequence simply by working on themselves. And, you know, it's, it's become now known, of course, that's a never-ending treadmill that also gets eaten up by the very same uh, nature of this, you know, larger mass organism, just as revolutionary movements are the same. They also get devoured by this, you know, movements that start, you know, sort of really uh, oppositional to the all devourer somehow find themselves becoming enveloped and all of a sudden it's a new brand identity, right? To be revolutionary or. Uh, exactly. Right? Well, that was that, that I shared that book by Herbert Marcuse, a one dimensional man. He says, that's mm -hmm. what happens when you put it in the box of capitalism, it's going to put it in a dimension where it can be sold. It's a pitch. It's a thing, right? It has this wonderful ability to do exactly what you just said, you know, and we can yeah. see it in so many arenas. Um, and, and, and she mentioned the Zapatistas and she mentioned some other communities. And one thing that emerged was that you have to design also your thing in such a way where um, you're in partnership with natural principles. We didn't really go into it, but so that it doesn't, it's not uh, a good host. If you go back to that sort of germ theory versus terrain theory, it's sort of like you have to do the terrain in such a way where the germs, it's not going to live there like mm. that. Now, that might be idealistic, but... Well, this, but this does get to, I think, the heart of what, what is really being asked, which is, you know, again, imagining possible futures. And the one future that seems sort of um, inevitable based on the kind of momentum and the willingness by a lot of people to just continually go along with it is uh, a, a technocratic society of control. Um, and this is the, again, like the specter that I think a lot of people are raising the alarm about, the ones that are saying, like, I mean, Charles and others that have said like, whoa, 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 like, is this actually the future we want, regardless of what one thinks about the efficacy of the vaccines? And it becomes very difficult to imagine other possible futures, right, that, that essentially allow for the continuation of the system largely as it is, right? Because again, that's the paradox that seems how some, some, somehow seems unsolvable from within, right? Which is the question becomes to, to the dominant culture, how do I keep being exactly as I'm being, but even more so in the future. And, and the answer seems to be, okay, well, we need more control. We need more, um, you know, treatments or not treatments, but like sort of dealing with this threat in a way that allows us to continue, I mean, dominant culture as it is. But of course yeah. we, we're seeing like Stephen Jenkinson said, you know, again, way back for life to continue, our way of life has to end. Like that's like a boom, mic drop, like no way around that. And, and that's not saying necessarily that, you know, humans have to, get wiped off the face of the earth, but it means they have to fundamentally restructure how we are in relationship to the earth. And this goes back to, I think, what um, uh, Alixa was saying around this idea of enchantment, right? Which I thought was such a beautiful um, rendition she gave this idea to, I think I wrote out, to return to the song that the wild is singing, that the actual, the invitation um, for, uh, you know, a dominant culture, which has separated itself so tragically and therefore from that fundamental tension of 
being separate, there's a certain wildness, right, which invokes a lot of fear, the need to control. In many ways, one could see the pandemic itself or the COVID-19 as this, uh, this wild being that has sort of breached the gates of civilization and is, you know, uh, rampaging among us. Like, and so now again, the fear response of oh, control, lockdowns, right? We have to, we have to defeat this beast um, so we can go back to being, you know, safe and civilized. And in that sense, it's already too late. Like the beast is among us. And so how do we uh, recognize the, the invitation, right? The song, uh, because that's the undercurrent of this whole thing. Mm, yeah. Well, that's quite a counterpoint to, well, we just need to get our next boost, booster shot. And, you know, Pfizer CEO is like, there's another, you know, vaccine that we can, we're going to be able to produce for this. Um, and so there's just such this strong counterpoint between these two. And I think that brings up the challenge that happened with, in Kelly Brogan's interview, which is around complementarity. And is it possible? Like if one group of people is like, this is the obvious response. And another people are like, well, we need to actually deeply listen and connect with the earth and empower a different paradigm of health and our immune systems have bioregional, you know, communities that are able to govern their response to be able to have a, 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 a multi-layered sort of social understanding based on people's um, preferences and their actual, actual degree of risk to a potential pathogen and what they might choose. I mean, it's like, there's this there's like this side here this side here and these like kind of layers in between and maybe the thing is is that the poles are not meant to meet and that's why they exist like they exist to give a reference point for the other but what can meet is all the people that are lining and tuning in the in the in the layers in between the poles and that's where we can mix uh i i saw i don't know if you saw that heineken ad um of have you seen that Heineken ad? It's absolutely remarkable where they, they, they have this experiment where they have, you know, a couple of pairs of people, like one person doesn't believe in climate change at all. Right. He's like, that, if I met someone who's like, believe in climate change, it'd be like, you're completely like out to lunch. And there's another guy who's like a climate activist. And then there's one person who think, like doesn't agree with transgender and doesn't think that we're supposed to, and it's completely unnatural. And there's this other woman who is, ex-military who then became a woman and she's transgender, right? This is and a then Heineken was, ad? It's a Heineken ad. And there was one woman who was a complete like feminist and another guy who was like total chauvinist. He's like, you know, feminism is actually, an, it, it's like pulling down our society, like that kind of thing. So these two opposites, they put them in a room together. They don't know each other though. And they have to like figure out how to put a piece of furniture together. And they have to like exchange instructions to help each other out. Then they get to ask each other questions about themselves, sort of like, tell me five things about you. And then they start, they're asked to share their degree of similarities and commonalities with each other. And you can see that they actually really like, oh yeah, we have all these commonalities. Like, you know, like I would totally hang out with you, da da da. And then after they put two beers on the table and this is why it's a Heineken egg. So they have two beers there. And then a video shows up and the video is of each of them speaking about their their either their political, their uh, sexual orientation, their climate views, you know, for each in individual person. And they're like, I can't believe that that's the person I'm sitting here with. And the and then the announcer says, so now you can make a decision. Either you can sit down and have a beer and get to know each other or you can leave. And each one stops. They sit down 
they decide to have a beer with each other and they're like, you know what, why don't we talk about this? Or like, I'm interested in your, your view. Like, how would you see it that way? And then, and then another person opens up being like, you know, I've never really talked to someone like this, but I've always felt this way, but maybe I, maybe I don't see it correctly. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing to just see this experiment and how they were able to come and meet, you know, it's just, if you focus first on your similarities and your basic human connection, then it's a lot easier to meet, right? But we're trained always to see a polarization and difference and, and fear another who we, we never talk to, right? Mm -hmm. And that's decrying. And I'm sure as a media, you know, um, agent such as yourself, you've probably thought about this a lot. Mm. Well, I mean, I, that's a remarkable ad. I mean, I'm curious to check it out as well. And yeah. also, you know, what's, what I see, I think, was within even the series, right, is the attempt to actually bring together those people that hold a certain uh, perspective, right, of this prism and being able to invite them in to have these conversations and for people to listen in and to experience perhaps something similar, right? The ability to hear someone with a little more, you know, through this medium, but to, to make a connection of a sense like, okay, you know, I see, I see where they're coming from. I see why they might believe what they believe without immediately resorting to, uh, you know, cancel or, or, you know, polarization to say, I would never, you know, think like them. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that's the flavor the intention certainly has been of this series. And it's been also fascinating to see, right. How, who, which side quote unquote is willing to, you know, in good faith, hear another side, right. That is, that well, is uh, not what they believe. I mean, to be fair, I don't think we've represented the pro-vaccine view very thoroughly and a lot more of the, the mainstream side. And, and hopefully we can we can still maybe find a way to do that. But I, I think that we have been more towards one direction, you know, in all fairness. Now, we have heard people who've listened to this um, and they've come and they've been within a dynamic within their own household where that polarization is, has existed, but it allowed them to sort of find that common ground. So it's not that it, it's clearly still serving somewhat of that, that purpose. Um, so it's, it's curious. Yeah. yeah. And I would, I would say too, though, perhaps in the defense of the, of the roster as well, that though, <laughs> though nobody necessarily has been banging the drum of this is absolutely the way in terms of Provax, that yeah. is the perspective on mass outside of the mainstream culture. I was yeah. just reading a New York times article, uh, opinion piece where you know the headline was something like you know I'm fed up with the unvaxxed like they have I have zero tolerance for them anymore um, they're the reason why this pandemic isn't over I don't care what they think and why you know like move on or you know get out of the way because you know you're dragging your feet the you're in the station you're on it or you're not kind of thing yeah so it's so for me that's like that is the you know that is the perspective that so many people are greeted with over and over and over again and so the nuance here is to be able to of course, invite perspectives, but in a, in a way that perhaps makes them more accessible. Again, social media is just, you know, outrage central, right? Whatever, whatever that one disagrees with, if they don't immediately cut it out, right, then it's an outraged remark typically um, to dismiss it or to bully them into holding the same perspective, of course. And it's just not the right venue, of course, for generally for um, nuanced connection, as in the, the, the likelihood of connection is just very low, right? It becomes entrenched worldviews sort of dueling it out. Um, and so I feel like with this uh, series as well, I mean, it's good to name, we're heading into our final session, actually, our final yeah. official session uh, next week with, as you mentioned, Teokusin Ghost Horse, um, who is a formidable 
uh, weaver, it seems, of a lot of indigenous voices and conversations over many years through uh, the radio program that he's run, that he runs. And I understand also he's a, I think, a quantum physicist. I think that was what was, uh, or he's deeply studied, at least in quantum physics, as well as the Lakota language as well, and, and holds a unique perspective that uh, I think brings, you know, particular uh, revelations from yeah you know even you know i was reading in his article that he said that the word domination is not in the lakota language and i don't want to give away too much for the next session i'm sure we'll bring this up but you know someone brought this up in our michael mead talk it was a it was a question around you know what kind of do we need a new language or it, it might have been something similar with bio like i hear i'm hearing from people this sort of recognition that there's an imprisonment in language in terms of how we think about these things from the use of our personal pronouns to words that are in our vocabulary that open our minds to few things in ways that other cultures don't even see that, um, especially ones that are more collectivistic or are tuned into a more mythic or subtle aspect of life or to the natural world. So it's, uh, it's a, definitely a question having someone like Alexa offer poetry is at least for, for, for a lot of us where our notion of what is what is true and what we can take in is happening through language, specifically very measured language, very logical and linear and rational language to take in truth, to take in story, to even hear story or to hear poetry to help us true to what's happening, right? And that was something that Michael Mead had brought up, right? That if we want to really true, Whereas you gotta, your heart needs to hear a poet or a story to true to what's going on underneath, right? And, and we are looking to true here. So it's a different kind of truing. And, and I wonder how, you know, the, the factual truing and the, and, the, and the poetic truing, you know, do, do, the times they're at odds that sometimes they meet, you know, it's almost, some people might find it hard to hear the poetic truing because the truth that it gives you is different from the one that you had agreed with that formulated on the factual level. Mm. Like they can be at deep odds with each other. And, and I think many people feel that way. There are many very poetic or, or heartfelt um, uh, people who are lovers of earth who feel that the path in this pandemic is to follow distancing protocols and to wear masks and to trust the science and to get vaccinated. But that doesn't mean that they have they don't have a deep abiding concern about the earth or about climate change or any of those things. Like there's just such a complexity in people that, you know, could coexist and be on these lines. Uh, it really, it, it, it brings us back to that question of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to be willing to be uncertain, even about each other, mm -hmm. truly, about what it means. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. You know, I, I feel perhaps, yeah, this also brings us to where we, we got close to in the end with uh, Elixa, which is around this, the function of imagination and the ability to imagine that, you know, the term imaginal cells was used as the, I think it, you know, it relates to the butterfly and how mm -hmm. you know, the, when the butterfly is in the, or the caterpillar is in the cocoon, it's the imaginal cells that um, sort of provoke the, the gooing phase uh, and, and catalyze the possibility of really a, a being or a transformation, which to the caterpillar, of course, is completely impossible that that would ever be uh that that could happen and yet you know that latent possibility lies within, within yeah being. and so i think that that's as a as a metaphor as a as a you know wondering for this moment it it takes it out of for me imagination as a kind of um yeah as a kind of gee whiz uh you know must be nice kind of thing but actually like an, a radical act 
again, to be able to imagine what uh, a futures, what futures could be outside of the current paradigm uh, of, of ever more increasing control and the, the sort of doubling down, right, of the existing systems. Because it, 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 it's, again, when you try, it's very, very hard to imagine something outside of the current system that you're already in. Uh, because again, all of your reference points um, come from the thing. I mean, this question came up with Stephen Jenkinson uh, around this idea. He, you know, he's not big on solutions, right? Often that when we say, and I think you did in the interview, like, hey, well, you know, how do we, or what about, uh, and, you know, his response to that, um, and I, I think I read an, an extra little interview or listened to another interview too, where he elaborated further. And I was like, okay, now it makes sense. He said, because so often the jump to solutions comes from, right, the very system or the very uh, water you're swimming in. And the, the the need to like listen, to slow down, you know, to actually create the space whereby a response could come that is not dictated by all of the same, you know, mania. And, and you know, he, he's describing almost outwardly what mindfulness teaching preaches as well. Mm. You know, we operate out of this sort of prefrontal neocortex uh, when we are using our conscious mind, but so often our sort of our subconscious mind, um, our impulses immediately kick in and we have to intentionally create that space. Mm. Otherwise, if we just, otherwise we're just sort of reacting. It's like, it's built into our human brain is like that. So of course we're going to be that way. You know, this, this actually, something just landed for me too. I think in this, in this moment, recognizing that again, this idea of truing, right. Which we've worked with throughout the entire series and how there's this question too, like, what do we do or what's meaningful? What's how to meaningfully respond to this moment. And I think what's coming for me is the recognition if, I, again, maybe it could be mapped as simply, perhaps for the sake of this moment, in this argument, could be mapped simply that the, the response of more control and you know, more lockdown and more um, domination, maybe that could be mapped on the ego understanding, right? The, the, the sort of narcissistic, um, self-centric or human-centric worldview that has been wrapped up within industrial civilization itself, which is, you can almost call it like a, um, a macro narcissist, you know, entity, which is why it seems to, uh, operate at the expense of in any reciprocity, right. With earth is just simply resources to be managed, you know, within that You're world. You're thinking more of domination than control. It's a domination well, very... control, like the yeah. domination centric control impulse. Cause there's other control that's not necessarily bad, but I'm hearing that domination kind of yes yeah the need to essentially impose as a response to you know fear a wildness uncertainty and so i'm recognizing that you know all of the solutions that come from that understanding or that worldview uh are more of the same right we need more control we need more vaccines we need more uh doubling down of these systems but i'm understanding i think right and a lot of the indigenous guests seem to be saying which is that's the wrong thing to true to, right? It's not saying may, don't do them at all, right? Perhaps like maybe it's saying, well, sure, you know, social distancing and things can be useful. And for the, uh, the particularly vulnerable vaccines can be useful, but don't true to that as the, the sort of, you know, marching orders of what to do now, but actually use this as a moment to true to the earth long enough so we get that orientation because the earth is actually telling us what it wants us to do, I think. And the imagination that's pregnant in crisis, which is now, like this could be a huge fertile soil for imagination if we really listen deeply or, to the earth and 
what it can paint for us in the crisis to come. Mm. That's yeah. And I guess how I would say it too, I'd recognize, and I feel like I really want to anchor this even in my own sort of like, yeah, I need a t-shirt or something, but it's like um, the sense of the earth knows, I think how to orient what's needed in this moment. Um, And unless we listen long enough, we'll miss it. Right. We'll miss it. And that, that is an active process of, um, you know, more than just, yeah, simply pausing the machines or, you know, stopping flying for a little bit, but that there's actually like a deep need to return uh, to, in a sense that, that, yeah, that, that sacred encounter, right. Is maybe one way I'd say it. And each of us individually can do that as well. I think, I mean, I remember hearing Martin Shaw, the storyteller early days, of the pandemic, he said, you know, for hundred days, he went out to the forest and just offered his calling song, right. To, to all the beings. I mean, Sophie Strand, I think as well, was touching in on this, that we are, we ourselves can orient to that source, like the fishes, you know, Michael Mead said, go back to source. That's what the, the fish did, or the smart, the wise fish did. Uh, and listen, right. It's like, and listen, it's like, what is it telling you? Cause it won't come from the ego mind um, that is in fear and control uh, or it needs control. And it, like, it won't come from there, but it, and it has to come from somewhere else and it will come from this connection to life. Yes. And you know, this is the, this is the teaching of the yogis. This is my, my, my understanding and teaching of the yogis, you know, that when you experience the deep peace of being with nature, of being with spirit, you realize that so much of our, our desire and the momentum behind possessing and getting things it actually disconnects us from that source of peace that we have intrinsically within us and that we always project outside of ourselves to get it for a second, but then we lose it. And we think that we have to go back again to get it for a second, rather than turning in and realizing that the well is here, take your bucket, dip it down and drink. You know, I was at a waterfall yesterday. I was just being cleansed by the waterfall and sitting in this beautiful, beautiful place with the plants and with the birds and meditating there, there's such a deep peace that arises. And, you know, why, 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 why do we have to make our life so much about the rat race? You know, you really, it is so important when they do turn in and listen to themselves into nature, you already start to touch that place in you that you can't pretend that you didn't touch it. You know, when, 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 it, when, when these indigenous elders are speaking the voice of the earth because they've had deep contact, they're not saying this like they're trying to get you to miss out on something from the capitalist roster. Like they're saying, this is so much better and more true and more real. It's an invitation to something that is so much more of the heart and so much more fulfilling, this deep relationship with life, you know, as you speak of. Why would we choose otherwise once we know what's real? Well, I'd be in the question then too of, you know, because again, lest there be a sort of romanticized sense of like, oh, let's all, you know, disconnect and, and go meditate. And some do, certainly. Um, you but know, not course, in lifestyle, I mean. I mean, like, yeah, yeah. yeah you what don't... I'm trying to say is that, you know, this is the kind of great um, sort of blind spot of the, even the mindfulness movement on mass as it's taken up again by the machine, again, right? The machine civilization that it then becomes something to be more mindful about further resource extraction and plunder. Uh, so like, I guess I'm saying mindfulness on its own isn't enough. And there's something about needing to confront the, the systems as they are, but with that 
sense of mindfulness, right? Of the, with that orientation to um, understand that, you know, without that engagement, it'll come for you anyway, right? Like it'll, it'll, the system itself is going to constantly eat everything. It lives all inside. Devour. I mean, you can go sit at the waterfall and many people do, and they're just going to be worried about work or what they want to get or the girlfriend they're looking for or whatever it is. I mean, it is inside you. I mean, the system, it gets inside the sinews and cells and marrow of your bones, right? Until wherever you go, you feel like you have to play it out, right? Until you shift it inside. And, and, and the earth is our ally. <laughs> Otherwise, we don't have a reference point. Yeah, that's it. I guess that's it too, the truing, right? And where does, the, where does one true, what are, where does one resonate to that, that truing or that orientation? And that for me is the deep question, which I'm carrying with me. Um, also, as we close our recap here, grateful once again to Alexi Garcia for you know, yes. bringing her words, her poetry, uh, her insights, and looking forward to the final official session of this series happening uh, in a couple of days here with uh, Tio Cass and Ghost Horse. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Please come if you're hearing this recap or you see it later. I have a very, very good feeling about this next one. <laughs> Beautiful cliffhanger. Okay. Well, onward. Thanks once again, brother.